If you could just take a few moments and fill that out, we would greatly appreciate it. Then at the very conclusion of service, our offering plate would be going by. If you could place that in there, we have a gift that we're going to give you before you leave today. And uh, we thank you for, for joining us this morning. Now, if you have your uh, Bibles, get your Bibles out, but don't open them. We're going we're gonna to need to use them in a minute, but not yet. Keep them closed. Um, I'm going to start a, a new series today. And so I want to make sure that you are ready for that. But even before we begin, I just want to have a word of prayer uh, over the word of God and, and as we begin this morning. So let's have a word of prayer. God, you are good. And as we begin service, this, as we have begun service this morning, I, I have a sense for many in the congregation that have walked in that are carrying uh, burdens. They're carrying burdens for others. There's some that are, that are still recovering from from, from various injuries and surgeries that they have had and just that, that nagging thing that is still there that they just want to go away. There's some that have been praying for people and, and families that have serious illnesses and they just don't know what is going to happen next and they're waiting on a report or waiting to hear something new. Or all across this, this, this church, there are people that are carrying burdens. And as we begin service, and as we open up the word of God, we must be reminded that we serve a living God. And you are not a God that longs for us, you, you long for us to bring our worries to you, but to not just be consumed with worry and with fear and with frustration, but allow in our moments of fear, in our moments of frustration, to lean in and say, Lord, you are a God that can heal. You are a God that can teach me something in this moment, in this season of my life, if I will only embrace it. So may we be the people of God that, that, are, that have open hearts this morning as we open up your word and say, yes, Lord, uh, maybe now more than ever, I need to hear your word and I need to respond to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now, we're going to begin a new series today, and uh, I, uh, it's called Majoring in the Minors, and I'm going to study the minor prophets. And the reason why we call them the minor prophets is, isn't that complicated. You're going to learn real quickly why. I think this is going to work like I expect it to, but all right, I need you to be willing to be vulnerable with me for five questions. When I say vulnerable, that means you got to be willing to answer a question wrong and know that we're not that religious of a group of people here that we're going to make fun of you or anything, okay? So don't make fun of anybody if they get an answer wrong, okay? So if the answer is yes, I want you to lift up your hand. If the answer is no, you can remain, you can, you can keep it down. And if you don't participate, I will make fun of you, okay? Now, so here's the first question. Is this a book of the Bible? Next one there, Nick. Is Micah a book of the Bible? If Micah is a book of the Bible, raise your hand. Can't look at your contents. No, no, uh, okay, correct. Micah is a book of the Bible. Very good. It is a minor prophet. Next one, Hezekiah. Raise your hand if Hezekiah is a book of the Bible. Hezekiah is not a book of the Bible, but good job. Those of you who didn't raise your hands. Next one, I know none of you are cheating. I know nobody's looking at their contents. Zephaniah. Raise your hand if Zephaniah, that's a weird name, is a book of the Bible. Raise your hand. Diane and Mandy are the only ones right. Lisa, nice job. Yes, Zephaniah is a minor prophet. Next one. 
Josiah. Lift your hand up if Josiah is a book of the Bible. Josiah. All of you are right except one person, and I won't say who that one person was. Good job, though. Next, last one, Zechariah. Lift up your hand if Zechariah is a book of the Bible. Very good. All of you that raise your hand, you are correct. Now, I just intermingled three minor prophets in there, Zechariah, Zephaniah, and Micah, okay? Many of you, Zephaniah especially, you never even heard of it. And yes, it's a book of the Bible. So there's no fantastic theological reason why these are called the minor prophets. It's really simple. Uh, They're called minor prophets as opposed to major prophets. The major prophets, Isaiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, and Jeremiah have a thicker amount of substance. They have more canonical effect than the 12 minor prophets. They just don't carry as much of a message. They don't have as much of an influence on the theological concepts that carry throughout the rest of Scripture. Another way to put it is really just, for the most part, they're also smaller. Some of them are uh, about 14 chapters. There's a couple that are about 14 chapters long, but for the most part, they're pretty smaller books of the Bible as well. So there's nothing significant, uh, real significant, about um, why the word minor is used, but why I've been here for almost seven years And I have preached two sermons out of the minor prophets. And the reason for that isn't isn't that complicated. There's... Uh, But oftentimes we stay away from these books because we have a hard time applying the messages of these books to today. And oftentimes when I hear people preach on the minor prophets, they take a lot of this stuff and this coming doom and destruction. And they, this is America today. This is what's going to happen to us. And I don't think someone is speaking in the prophetic when they say those things. But there are certainly some patterns in these books and the the course of history and biblical history that we can listen to and impart and understand for what the Lord is speaking to us today. History can tend to repeat itself. And through these minor prophets, we can hear the voice of God. We can understand the character of God. And although much of the application that comes out of it is very theological, in our moments as we're studying, we go through this series, you're going to find just how much these words will hit home. And if nothing else, you're going to learn about some books of the Bible that you maybe have never even heard of before. Okay? So I want to give you just a quick little study here to get started so you have a better grasp on even what the minor prophets are. Okay? So now it is going to be important that you get a Bible out and open up to the contents to the contents of your Bible, so you can see all the different books of uh, Scripture right there, so you can kind of understand all these things. Now, I'm going to give you some quick biblical history, and and then I'm going to explain to you where all these prophets fit in. So, if you would read through the historical parts of the Old Testament, which is Genesis through uh, Ezra, okay, that's the historical account of the Bible. Um, First and Second Chronicles are kind of repeats their priestly language for First and Second Samuel and First and Second Kings. So you have the whole historical story. Now, what you find somewhere in the Book of Kings and in Second Chronicles is what begins to happen to the, to Israel. Okay, Israel breaks off into two nations: a northern kingdom they call it Israel, 
and the southern kingdom, they call it Judah. Now, what takes place with Israel is Israel ends up going into captivity by a country called Assyria. Anybody know what the capital of Assyria is? Joe actually just said it to you. It's Nineveh. You've heard about Nineveh in the story of Jonah. So the Assyrians were incredibly wicked people. They were ruthless. They, liked to, they actually liked to put people in small cages and just torture the snot out of them. It's really sick when you study some of the stuff that the Assyrians did. There is a reason why all of Israel and all of Judah hated Assyria. So Israel, they, they really don't have any good prophets. They re, or excuse me, good kings, not good prophets. Forget I just said that. They didn't have any good kings after they split up into two kingdoms. Most, most scholars will tell you that almost every king that Israel had was a bad king. And Israel goes into captivity under Assyria. Okay? Then a few years later, uh, year, many years later, Judah goes into captivity. But Judah, there is now a new you know, king chief country, and it's Babylon. So Judah goes into captivity into Babylon. Okay, so they call that period of time where where Israel and Judah is no longer in Israel, they call that exile. They were either in Assyria, they were in captives in Assyria, Babylon, and then after Babylon, which you read about in the book of Esther, the new dominant nation was Medo-Persia. Okay, so you read about that in the book of Esther when the, the Jews begin to go back to Israel and you read about that in Esther, and then you read about them rebuilding the wall in the book of Nehemiah, and you read about, about them restoring uh, the, the temple and all of the priestly aspects in the book of Ezra. So that is kind of quick history in a nutshell of what takes place. So you heard that they go into captivity, they're in captivity, they call that exile, and then they go back. Okay? So the reason i got to set that up for you is because... So now you can take a look at these minor prophets, okay? I put uh, the major prophets, Isaiah, Ezekiel, Jeremiah, and Daniel in here as well so you can understand where they fit. But these are called pre-exilic prophets. This is before the exile. Most of these people preached about the coming judgment that could come. And Jonah, Amos, and Hosea were prophets to Israel before they went into exile, okay? The next three, or the next set of prophets, excuse me, Many of the, the minor prophets are pre-exilic prophets to Judah. Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, and I put Obadiah there with an underline because Obadiah and Joel, or Joel, are the two hardest prophets to place in a proper time period. Uh, most, most scholars will conclude on everybody except Obadiah and Joel is where they fit in the context of history. But Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Obadiah, Isaiah, and Jeremiah all prophesied to Judah before they went into exile. And then there are two prophets that they prophesied during exile, and that's Ezekiel and Daniel. Those are both major prophets. There are no minor prophets that are believed to be exilic prophets. And then as they make their way back to Israel and begin to rebuild under Nehemiah and Ezra, the, the post-exilic prophets are Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi. And again, Joel, Joel's debated, but he looks forward to the coming of Christ. And so these are all of the, this is, these are, they're all the different 
uh, minor prophets and where they fit in history. So we're going to get into um, we're going to get into the prophet, the minor prophet that you're the most familiar with, I'm sure, which is Jonah. But then we're also going to talk about another one, which you're probably not that much familiar with at all, in Nahum. Now, I just want to begin because th- this seems to always happen, and people like to use maybe the reason why, as a pastor or as a preacher, I haven't taught from these books as much, is because I hear a lot of preachers use these texts and say, this is America. This is what's going to happen to us. This prophecy is exactly like us. And we don't, there's certainly some things we can learn from all of these, but there's no reason to speak in the prophetic. I, we were doing a, um, we were doing something to, uh, we were, we were, this vacation Bible school, we were spending some time with the teenagers. By the way, we, our biggest group that we had come this week was teenagers and that was because of the, the youth group that we've been building through Wakoka. We had just shy of 20 kids come through our uh, 7th through 12th grade group each week. And w- I heard the kids say, because they don't know any different, and sometimes we don't know any different either, they said, these have got to be the wickedest times on earth. And we like to say those things and feel like we're really living in those moments in our country, but historically it's just not true. There have been worse times and, and worse things happening. Specifically speaking, in this country, there is no mass genocide taking place. There is no forced idolatry being forced to worship. The truth is that this is a time of freedom and grace. The text in Galatians 5.13 says this. It says, You, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free. But do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Rather, serve one another humbly in love. We live in a moment, if I use a big theological word, it's called dispensation. We live in a dispensation of grace. Where ultimately you, as the people of God, have the authority, have the power, have the choice. What will you do with with? When there is wickedness around you, what will you do when you have all the resources that you need to serve the living God? Uh, I hope we get taken back. This week we, we learned this, we got to hear the story of Noah again. And when we hear the story of Noah and the flood, we have to be reminded that Noah was the only person on the earth in that time that was obedient to God. The only one, when everyone else was doing something different, he was the crazy one who was preparing for judgment. So uh, I just want to be careful of that. I want us to, as we, as we read from these texts, we clearly need to hear uh, what the Lord is saying. We, we need to draw parallels to our day in those days, uh, but we need to let these prophets speak for themselves and more importantly, speak to our hearts about what this means for us today. So I'm going to give it just a real short intro message for Jonah a grace and judgment from Jonah to Nahum to today. Now, I'm going to assume, maybe I shouldn't assume, that most of you have heard the story of Jonah before. Jonah was a prophet to Israel. And Israel hated Assyria. The Assyrians were wicked. And so God calls Jonah to go preach to Assyria. As Jonah hears the call, does he go and respond right away? 
No, he goes in the opposite direction and gets on a ship headed to Tarshish, clear in the opposite direction. And while he's on that ship, um, the, the, the storm comes and all of the people who are, were not, do not worship the same God as Jonah begin to wonder, what is happening? The gods are cursing us. And Jonah tells them the truth. This is happening because I'm here. And they all begin to worship Jonah's God. And Jonah tells them what he needs to do. You need to throw me off of the boat and you guys will be fine. So they throw Jonah off the boat. I studied that, that te- well, I studied that text and I wonder, is this Jonah even trying to end his life? He's actually trying to end his life so much because he doesn't want to go to Assyria. But whatever happens next, he, he's thrown off the boat and a giant fish, not a whale, Bible doesn't say whale, a giant fish comes and get him and takes him to Nineveh, which is in Assyria. And it's there. And it's in the, the belly of the fish that Jonah repents. But when Jonah hits the ground in Nineveh, he finally does what he's supposed to do. And he begins to preach to the Ninevites. And you know what happens? They respond. This crazy, wicked nation responds to the, to the words of the prophet. And, and God heeds his judgment upon Nineveh. Now, that's the popular story that you've heard. Okay, And it's true. Um, but the part that often gets neglected in the book of Jonah, and I want you to go there now, is a p- passage that Cheryl read this morning. It's in Jonah chapter 4. So open up your Bibles. You should still be at your contents. You can find where Jonah is because the minor prophets can be hard to find sometimes. And we're going to be majoring in the minors this, in these upcoming weeks. And go to Jonah chapter 4. Now, uh, Cheryl read this passage, so I'm just going to tell you what's going on here. So take a look at chapter 4. What has just transpired is God has heeded his judgment upon Jonah. But the heart of this story comes now in chapter 4, where you have a prophet of God is sitting in the shade, and, and all of a sudden he's appreciating life again. He didn't want to do what he just did. Many say, most scholars will say, and I would agree, that Jonah, when he responded to Nineveh, there was some repentance that took place in the fish, but he was still just doing what he knew he was supposed to do. He understood authority. He understood the right thing to do, and he was responding to authority and doing the right thing. But what's exposed in chapter 4 is his heart still isn't completely right. Now, he's... He's sitting here and in, in, in the shade, and all of a sudden, God takes this plant away from him. And now he's miserable again, sitting in the heat, at just kind of like the heat that we have right now in Ohio. And maybe you've said, like Jonah has, I just want to die. It's so hot. That's what Jonah says. And it's like the Lord is responding and laughing at him while he's obviously sharing a key revelation that is for all of us today. He says, Jonah, I love you, but you are a selfish little dork. That's in Scripture. You just haven't read it yet. And he says, you have been so concerned with this plant, and now it has been taken away, that now it has been taken away from you. You long for it back. But yet you still can't express the same concern for the people of Assyria who are my creation, who I love. 
And so what's happening in this moment is God trying to get Jonah to have his heart. And see, this is the key crux of this whole story is what takes place right here in Jonah chapter 4. Now, now here's the irony is that many of you have heard the story of Jonah. Good story, great to share in children's church, great to pass on to your kids. But it doesn't do well to teach the prophet Nahum right after that. Because you know what Nahum tells the story of? How God comes and judges Assyria and Nineveh later. How even after all of their repentance, years later, God would come back and judge Nineveh. So I want you to open up your Bibles. It should be two books over to the book of Nahum. And I'm going to read. You, you go through after Jonah, you get into Micah, and then the next one is Nahum. And I'm going to read verses 1 through 10 of Nahum. Now, now... I want to remind you, Assyria is still the number one. 400 years, Assyria was top dog in all the world. And they were a wicked, messed up, sadistic type of people. Americans, we haven't, had, we haven't even had that long a time on top, if you, want to, if you consider us the, the world's great power, which we are. They were on top for 400 years. And so Babylon is now the new up-and-coming nation. And so a lot of this judgment that, that the Lord is referring to in the book of Nahum is when Babylon is going to come and overtake them. And the first chapter is basically uh, judgment decreed. The next chapter is, is, is also about, uh, in the last chapter is judgment deserved. And I think you could say the third chapter, um, excuse me, the second chapter is, is judgment um, declared. Decreed, declared, deserve. I forgot one more, but a, a pretty simple outline for what's going on in, in Nahum. So I'm going to read verses 1 through 10. It says, A prophecy concerning Nineveh. Yes, the same Nineveh that Jonah prophesied to. The book and the vision of Nahum the El- Elkishite. The Lord's anger against Nineveh. The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord takes vengeance. Think about that word. We're going to ask that question in a minute. It says the Lord takes vengeance and is filled with wrath. It says it again. The Lord takes vengeance on his foes and vents his wrath against his enemies. But in verse 3, it says this. The Lord is slow to anger, but great in power. The Lord will not leave the guilty unpunished. His way is in the whirlwind and the storm and the clouds are the dust of his feet. He rebukes the sea and dries it up. Oh, I've only got to verse 4. I forgot what I wanted to tell you before I read this. See how many different characteristics of God that you can discover in this. What God is like from this passage. I know I've already whizzed through about four of them, but I'm going to go on out of verse 10. All the different characteristics of God in this passage. Says he rebukes the sea and dries it up. He makes all the rivers run dry. Bashan and Carmel wither, and the blossoms of Lebanon fade. The mountains quake before him, and the hills melt away. The earth trembles at his presence, and the world and all who live in it. Who can withstand his indignation? Who can endure his fierce anger? His wrath is poured out like fire. The rocks are shattered before him. The Lord is good, a refuge in times of trouble. He cares for those who trust in him, but with an overwhelming flood, he will make an end of Nineveh. 
He will pursue his foes into the realm of darkness. Whatever they plot against the Lord, he will bring to an end. Trouble will not come a second time. They will be entangled among thorns and drunk from their wine. They will be consumed like dry stubble. I ended to that verse because I have heard that verse right there, Nahum 1.10, taken out of context and could say, and I want you to understand, and, and people declare prophetically, this is America right here, verse 110. Consumed with the things of the world, the thorns of this world, and living for entertainment like drunk on wine and not paying attention to the things of God, and ultimately they will come about in judgment. Now see what I'm saying? Many people do these things and declare thus the word of the Lord. This is the word of the Lord in Nahum to Assyria. But when we read these texts, it does cause us to take a step back and be reminded of the character of God, what nations were judged for in the past, and scratch our heads and wonder why or when or if we will be judged for these same things at some point in time. And so these books, I'm going to bring this to a close quickly here. I want to throw a couple questions at you now. These books cause me to ask some tough questions. And, and so the first one is this. Is God a God of vengeance? Don't put the answer up there yet. I actually just said that. I said the opposite of that in a small group this week in Vacation Bible School. I said, God's not a God of vengeance. He's not after revenge. I think more specifically, I said, those of you who carry vengeance against someone, your God is not going to rally to that cause with you. It's his creation. He's a loving God, and he loves them too. But I also just read to you in the book of Nahum, and you can see it in other minor prophets and major prophets well, about a vengeful God. So which one is it? Is God a God of vengeance? And here's an answer for you, a true biblical answer. Yes, but always after a season of grace. Always are those that he's about to bring his justice, his wrath upon, they are given a season of grace. And church, as I told you as I began this message from, that, from the passage in Galatians, if you can pull that passage back up, Nick, I know I didn't have that in my notes, but I'll go back to, uh, it says, You, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh, rather serve one another in love. Go to 1219, back to Romans 1219. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. So I hope you've read between the lines and caught the biblical truth here. Is God a God of wrath and vengeance? Yes, he is. So what is our role in this? It's not to avenge. It's to live in the dispensation of grace and to carry the heart that, that he was challenging Jonah to, which will answer our next question. The next question, why 
If God is ultimately going to bring judgment upon Nineveh in the book of Nahum, why would God put Jonah through such a thing ultimately if, if ultimately, I forgot to put the word if there, through such a thing if ultimately Nineveh would be judged? And here's the answer and the point of our message today. He wanted Jonah to have his heart just as he does you and me. And 1 Chronicles 16.11 says this, Look to the Lord and his strength. Seek his face always. I've shared that before on Sunday mornings, what seek his face means versus seek his hands. Many people, even, even in churches all across America, people are seeking the hands of God. They're hoping he responds on their half. They're hoping someone gets healed. They're hoping a, a situation in their life changes. They're hoping they see something different happening and hoping that God is the one that brings that to them. That's seeking the hands of God. There's nothing wrong with that, but Bible is, commissions us to seek the face of God beyond everything else. That means his character. Know who he is. Share his heart, share his thoughts, share his burdens for his creation. So I want you to capture this today. See, we live in an era, a dispensation of grace. We see grace, we see judgment, and ultimately what happens in this story is a separation. The Syrians are no more. There is a separation from Assyria and Israel and Judah. There's, then there's a separation from Babylon and Judah. Then there's a separation from Judah and Persia, Persia, Persia. We see that pattern. Grace, judgment, separation. And if you've read the rest of your Bible in the book of Revelation, one of the most profound things that nobody really captures is that the Bible talks about a time on this earth in a thousand-year reign of Christ when Jesus Christ in the flesh will rule and reign and be physically present on this earth. And then it says that after that time, after everybody knows that this story, that this book we have read is true, that Jesus is alive, Jesus is living, this story is true, this story is real, that after that period of time, the enemy, Satan, will be loosed again and will deceive many. And there's going to come a day where, the, where Revelation says that he will wipe all the tears from the eyes. That's really the eyes of the Lord. Because at some point there's going to have to be a separation. And that is an ultimate explanation as to why the living God has to do it this way. Because some of my creation, when given a choice... They will not choose me. So therefore, I will turn them over to their own demise, to ultimately what it is that they really want. And so now we live in that time where we're awaiting the Lord's coming. And there's a heart that we are called to have while we wait. I know there's some in this room that want vengeance on someone else. If you're sitting here today, that's not just you, that's other people in this room. We all carry this stuff that I can't believe he did that. I can't believe she did that. And there's some that are carrying, and, and, and as I prayed in the beginning, they have burdens that they're carrying for other people and waiting and wishing and hoping those things would be made right. There's others who are, who are in some form of suffering, however major, however minor it would be. And they're waiting for that to be whole again and for that to be made right. 
But do you get the point, man and woman of God? That the Bible was written for moments just like you're in right now. In the midst of your waiting, in the midst of your longing for vengeance, in the midst of your, your, your suffering, in the midst of carrying someone else's burden, God wants to reveal himself to you in this moment. And he wants to give you his heart. As Jeremiah called it, a heart of flesh. Not a heart that is hard and calloused, but a heart that is moved by the fact that we are all in this together. We are all imperfect people in need of a Savior. As we shared in Vacation Bible School this week, when Jesus died upon the cross for us, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, but he has given us and distributed to us the free gift of God, grace that has been freely given to us to receive. Grace is recognizing that we have been given something that we don't deserve, that is very good. And now we are required to give that to everyone else and embrace the season that we are in and the living God that wants to reveal himself to us through it. Let's pray. Lord, today all across this room, there are people that need to come to know you in this moment. They're waiting so much for, for tomorrow, for situations and circumstances to work it out. But right here in this moment, you want to speak to them. You want to say, I have something for you now that you would never be able to receive if it weren't for your suffering, if it weren't for your burden, if it weren't for the baggage that you are carrying. In this moment, I have your attention, so will you hear me as I speak to you? And man and woman of God, will you respond to me and be empowered with the Spirit of God to do the things that you were created to do? Ah, I sense the power of God in this place that is ready, the dunamis power of God that is ready to be distributed if you will receive. So Lord, I pray for every heart here that is soft and has heard your word this morning. And I pray they would receive you in this moment and say yes to the living God. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, we, there's times when we have people come to the altar at the conclusion of service, and we're moving on today. But if you would be in need of prayer before you leave, I always want to make myself available. I uh, would love to pray with you if you would be in need as you, as you leave today. So bless you. Our offertory thought comes from Proverbs 3, 9. Honor the Lord with thy substance and with the first fruits of thine increase. May the ushers please come forward. Thank you.
May we pray. Dear Lord, bless the gifts that have been given this morning. May they be a very pleasing gift to you. And let us be able to use this money to be able to help in our community and the state and the world. For it is in your name we pray. Amen. Amen. For your benediction this morning, may you turn to the living God in this season of grace and carry his burden for his creation. God bless you. Have a wonderful week.